Hey, good morning, Joy Christian Center. Happy Father's Day, and welcome to what I affectionately call my man cave. Uh, before I show you around my man cave, which probably is going to take like 15 seconds or so, maybe 20 on the outside, uh, let's talk a little bit of man cave stuff. You might be wondering, what is a man cave? Well, Wikipedia says that a man cave can also be called a man space, it can be called a, a man land, or a mantuary. The Urban Dictionary says that a man cave is a room, space, corner, chair, or area of a dwelling that is specifically reserved for the male person to be in in order to work, play, involve himself in hobbies and activities. More importantly, the man cave is a place for the man to think, contemplate, and to process life without interruption. The room can be a specially equipped garage, spare bedroom, media room, den, or basement, but it always contains a TV with all of the furniture aiming at it. This area is decorated by the male that uses it without interference from any female influence. The decor of a man cave is very important, and it's often a reflection of the owner's personality. Walk into any guy's self-proclaimed cave and you can read him like a book. A sample of every aspect of his life or interests can be found tucked away in every corner of his cave. Take, for instance, my partial collection of coffee mugs. Now, in any other part of the house, they would be relegated to the lonely, overcrowded confines of a cupboard. But here in my man cave, they're on display for everyone to see. Here is my fantasy football trophy that commemorates my five league championships. Now, anywhere else in the house, it would be out of place. But here in my man cave, it has a place of prominence, just as it should. And then, of course, there are things that in any other part of the house, they would be totally off limits. But in the man cave, they're totally acceptable. I mean, a dead animal on the wall in the rest of your house, uh-uh. But in the man cave, they're totally awesome. Simply put, a man cave is a place that a man can be a man. It's a place where everyday bodily functions aren't met with a disgusted, horrified look followed by the words, what did you eat? But instead, they're met with an approving nod, a smile or a laugh, even a fist bump <coughs> exploded. <coughs> but here's the real question. Do we really need a man cave? Now, a lot of people would say no, but hear me out on this. I know that you know that men and women are different, but they process stress differently also. Generally speaking, when a man encounters stress and pressure, he needs time and space, but when a woman encounters stress and pressure, she needs proximity and closeness. In the book Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, the authors of that book cite a study that says that when women experience stress, eight times more blood flows to the emotional part of her brain, which is then connected to the speaking part of her brain. Us guys, eh, we don't have that. When we experience stress, we need to be alone. We need some time. And that time allows us to process the stress and pressure and then re-emerge from that place of refuge. So basically, a man cave is really that. It's a place of refuge. It's a place to process life and the pressures, the demands, and the stress of life. But really, the bottom line is this. Whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, we all need a place that we can process stress, that we can uh, look and filter the pressures of life through the Word of God. David said this in Psalms chapter 32, he said, You're my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble, and you will encompass me or cover me or surround me with songs of deliverance. And I like that because that tells me that David liked surround sound also. So, welcome to part one of our series, Lessons from the Man Cave. Oh, praise God. Well, amen. 
Amen. Uh, man caves are kind of fun things to have. And as you heard the definition of a man cave, you know, it can be a space. It can be a lot of different things. But essentially, it's a place to kind of be alone. And, and I want to read a couple of things because you might wonder where man cave came from. And there's a whole lot more. There's, there's many more things than I ever dreamed are uh, tied to this whole idea of the man cave. But in March 21st, 1992, a Canadian home consultant wrote a humorous guest column for the Toronto Star suggesting alternative names for rooms. Of, on a standard Canadian floor plan. Let's call the basement the man cave, she wrote, the first known time that the phrase is published in this context. So 1992, the phrase man cave was first published. Uh, the next month in April of 1992, a man by the name of John Gray, who is considered the Johnny Appleseed of man cavery, and one of the most responsible for entrenching it in the modern vernacular, released his book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. That's where it really rose to prominence, the man cave, man space, or the mansuary. All right, but it goes back even farther. If those of you who are perhaps familiar with uh, Iron Man, Tony Stark, he had a man cave of sorts. It was his high-tech, high-exotic car and place, uh, just like that. And uh, that's where he did his best thinking, was in his man cave. Hidden deep beneath uh, Wayne Manor and accessible only by a secret entrance, Batman had the Batcave. And I always have liked that car. <clears throat> That's the 60s version that was the, by far the best uh, Batman stuff. And, and there were even times that the Man of Steel, Superman himself, needed some space and time because he had the fortress of solitude where he could reflect, where he could have a place of refuge. And, and I think this, that, that the Man Cave history that we can see from 1992 and then back at comic books in the 40s and 50s that talked about our superheroes needing space to reflect, time to be alone, things like that. Do you realize that man cave idea even goes back farther than that? It goes back past the time of Jesus. It goes back into the Old Testament. Listen to this scripture in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 22, and it says this about David. It said, David there, therefore departed from there, everybody say there, he departed from there and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now the word Adullam means refuge or, or rest. And so David escaped from, from where? From there to the cave of Adullam to a place of rest. Now, to understand what the place of rest meant and why the place of rest is important, the cave of, of, at Adullam is important, you need to have a little backstory of what was going on in David's life. What was the there that he was running from? Because at this point in David's life, he was running for his life, literally running for his life. If you know a little bit about the story of David, David started out as a shepherd boy. Uh, he was anointed to be king by the prophet Samuel. The prophet Samuel came to his father said, I need to see your sons because one of them is to be the king of Israel. Uh, Jesse, uh, he, he brought all of his kids together and the prophet went one by one down the line and said, wait a minute, one of your sons is supposed to be the king, but apparently you must have another son because the, 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 I haven't recognized one. The Spirit of God hasn't recognized yet this person. And he goes, well, I've got one more, but he's the youngest. He's just a shepherd. He's out in the field. He said, well, bring that one to me. And so they brought David in. Finally, he smelled like sheep and who knows what. And it smelled maybe like the front of the church here, actually, a little bit ago. But no, actually. Uh, but actually, so David comes in and Samuel, or Samuel lays hands on him and says, yes, this is the next king of Israel. Now, fast forward a little bit. Not only was he a great shepherd, he was also a musician. 
He ends up in the house of King Saul, and he's playing music for King Saul. And, and what would happen is, the Bible says that an evil spirit would come to King Saul, and it would torment him. It would harass him. And so David would get out an instrument, he would begin to play, and he'd begin to worship God. And the presence of God would come into that place, and it would bring peace to King Saul. It would cause the evil spirits that were around him to be silenced and stilled. And I know a lot of people that think, well, you know, this music stuff, you're just singing songs until everybody gets here, so then you can preach and take an offering and stuff. Well, that's part of it, yes. But there's, there's a really important part in worshiping God. You can change the entire atmosphere of your home. You can change the atmosphere of your life by just inviting the presence of God through praise and worship, just worshiping the Lord. God's spirit will come and, and it'll bring life and refreshing to you and to those around you. And so that's what David was doing. He was playing songs for the king, worshiping God, and the presence of God would come into that place. But while he was in the king's palace, not only was that going Going on, there was the business of the kingdom that was happening. David was listening to strategies. He was listening to things going on. Eventually, he became a great military leader. In fact, there was a song that, that was in the top 40 for a while. It went to the top 10. It finally became number one on the charts, and the song kind of went something like this, that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his 10,000s. David was known as a mighty warrior, and perhaps his greatest victory was over a giant by the name of Goliath. And you probably have heard the story, but he picks up some stones and a slingshot, he whips him around, and he snaps the thing and hits Goliath in the head. He falls dead, and I really like this. It's a little bit gruesome, uh, but he grabs Goliath's sword, and that sword was, you know, I mean, it was a big, heavy sword. It was, it was, there wasn't another sword like it. It was the top-of-the-line uh, fighting material. He grabs that sword, and he cut off Goliath's head with that sword, and it was a mighty victory for Israel over the Philistines. So all that is going on. But something else happened. Saul, as the king, got jealous. He wasn't a big fan of the top song that David has killed his tens of thousands while Saul has only killed his thousands. He didn't like that so much. Now, Saul, the king, he had a son whose name was Jonathan, and Jonathan and David were best friends. And the word came that Saul was seeking to kill David. He wanted to put an end to his life because David was threatening his throne. Uh, you know, Jonathan found out about that, and so then he went and he told David about it. David literally was running for his life at this point. He's, he's, he's leaving, in fact, in chapter 21 where some of this is, and there's certainly a lot more history and backstory, but in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, a lot of these things take place. He leaves in such a hurry that he doesn't have time to get his weapons together. He doesn't have food. He shows up at the priest's house, or, or, or the place of the priest, and he says, you know, do you have any weaponry? Do you have a spear or a sword? Anything that I can use. And the, Ahimelech, the priest, he goes, he's looking around. He goes, well, hey, wait a second. Over here in the corner behind the altar, here's that sword. Here's that sword that you killed Goliath with. Here, you can take that. And, and here's some, some, some bread from the, some holy bread from the table. You can take that as well. And the Bible says then that David flees. And I think this is actually kind of funny. He runs away and he runs to the land of the Philistines. And, and there, he, actually think about this. David felt more safe, he felt safer in the land of the Philistines, the land of his enemies, than he did at home. That was the condition that David was in. That was the result of all of the things that had happened. Now he goes to the, 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 the Philistines, he thinks that nobody's going to notice him. I can hide there, nobody's going to notice me. <clears throat> but remember what he was dragging around with him? This great big heavy sword. It's like, is that Goliath's sword? 
I mean, nobody has a sword like that. I, I mean, it was just like having a big flashing neon sign, I'm King David, I'm the guy that, or I'm David, I'm the guy that killed Goliath. And so when he recognizes that, the, the, hey, they all know me. Now this is David, okay, think about David. He's a shepherd, pretty good one. He's obviously a good musician. He's obviously a great military strategist and, and a great warrior. Now he also has Academy of Award uh, to his credit because when he realizes that they recognize him and they know him and that they're gonna take him captive, he pretends that he's insane. He pretends that he's crazy. I mean, the Bible says that there's like, he just drools down his beard and he's snarling and nasty and just, and he's scratching at the doors and doing all kinds of different things. And they go to bring him to the king and the king says, do I not have enough crazy people in my kingdom already? Why are you bringing me another crazy guy? Get rid of him. I don't want that guy around here. So David takes off, and that's the therefore, that's the there. David finds himself now in the cave of Adullam. He finds himself in this place, and the word Adullam means refuge. It means a place of safety and protection. He finds himself there. And while he's in this place, this cave of Adullam, this place of refuge, he begins to write. One of the psalms that he wrote from that is Psalm 142. And I want to read this to you because I think that it gives a little bit of an idea of, of what David was going through. And I know that in our discussion this morning, the man cave and, and things like that, you might think if you're, you know, uh, uh, you know, the women here and I don't know, whatever, you might think, well, you know, this is just for the guys. I, I want to tell you something. Every single one of us need a cave of Adullam. Every single one of us are at some point in time in our life are going to need a place of refuge. We're going to need a place that we can come to, a place that we can go to, that we can find peace, that we can find some quietness, that we can process the stress and pressure of life. David was running for his life. But let me ask you a question. You might be here this morning. You might not be running for your life. You might think that, you know, well, you know, everything's good. Nobody is seeking my life. But how many of you are busy? How many of you have a lot, sometimes it seems like you have more to do than you can possibly do. You're running for your life. I mean, you know, the bills need to be paid. The kids need to go here. She needs to go there. You need to, all these different things that need to happen. And it's literally, we are running for our life. We're running here. We're running there. We're going everywhere. Every single person is going to need a cave of a dullum at some point in their life. And so David begins to write from this cave, from this place of refuge, and listen to what he says, Psalm 142, verse 1. He says, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. Now, this was written before Facebook. And had, this, had David experienced this in the age of Facebook, he would probably not have gone to the cave. He probably would not have gone to the Lord. He would have went to Facebook and he would have posted, you know, the little emoticon, I, I'm feeling discouraged today. I'm feeling, dis I, I, I'm going to pour out my complaint. I, I, I'm going to do those kinds of things. But I want you to notice something. When you find a cave of Adullam, when you find a place of refuge, it's you and God. And you need that. You need that place between you and God where you can pour out your heart as David is doing here. Notice again, he says, I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. Church, can I tell you this morning that the cave is a place that you can be honest, that you can pour out how you're really feeling before God. And think about David. He's in this cave. <clears throat> I've been anointed to be king. I've killed tens of thousands 
I'm more respected than Saul is. I'm a better leader than Saul is. And here I am running for my life. God, you've made a mistake here. God, you've made a problem here. Something is wrong. And he's pouring out his complaint before the Lord. And your complaint might be totally different. And you might think that God has has failed you. You might think that God has fallen short. You might think that God is not listening to where you're at. Can I tell you this morning that that cave is the place. That cave is the place that you can pour out your heart to God. But notice what it goes on to say as as he's pouring out his complaint. Verse 3 says this. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then You knew my path. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Now, he said, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Life has just surrounded me. There's so much that's going on. And he said, my enemies are setting a snare, but you know the path. I think this. I think that there are traps that the enemy has for you that you will never show up at. Have you ever been waiting to scare? uh, Sorry. I like to. It's a family thing. We like to scare each other. In fact, yesterday I got Stephanie really good. I was walking down the hallway. I knew she was in a room and she had no idea. I, actually, first I thought she heard me. But later I found out she didn't because I stood by the door. She opened the door. She turned around and went, bah! Like that. She went, bah! <laughs> good times. It was awesome. I felt like I'd really accomplished something. And she said, you didn't scare me. <laughs> Uh, she wasn't, at first she was mad. That's even better. But anyway, <clears throat> I digress. <laughs> I had a point for saying that. I don't even know what it was. Oh, that's what it was. <laughs> the enemy, <laughs> the devil, has traps for you. Have you ever been ready to set a trap and they never showed up? You're just kind of hiding. <laughs> they're coming, they're coming. Like 10 minutes later, you're still like, oh, they, they, where'd they go? They're not going to show up. That's the enemy. If we'll walk God's path, Stuff's going to happen, yes, but I think that the traps that he's designed to try to kill you and get you off course, you'll never show up at most of them because you're following a path that God has for you. And so again, they, then you knew my path. In the way that I should walk, you've secretly, they have set, secretly set a snare for me. Then he said this, look at my right hand and see. There is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. That, my friends, is a recipe for a great pity party. Do you realize they didn't even know me? Nobody recognizes me. Nobody's going to help me. Nobody's going to do anything. We Pretty soon we feel so, I mean, we're feeling so oppressed. We're feeling so sorry for ourselves. And that's where David was at. And I think that sometimes it almost sounds critical and it sounds condemning. If you ever feel like this, then something's wrong with you as a Christian. No, you're a human being. And we're all going to have things happen that are going to cause us to feel overwhelmed. But David did something that's not really intuitive for us to do. David knew where to go. And so he said, there is no one that acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. Verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge. Take a moment right now. Just close your eyes and say, God. Say it with me. God. You're my refuge. Say that again. God, you're my refuge. You know, David recognized something in that cave when when life was all just, you know, weighing him down, happening at warp speed. David recognized that even though I'm in this cave, God, you're my refuge. 
You might not have a beautiful man cave. Some of you ladies may not have a wonderful she shed, but, but here's the thing. We can all, there's such a thing. Uh, but anyway, this is an awesome little, anyway, my actual man cave looks really bare right now. But anyway, uh, you may not have that thing, but you know what you do have? You do have a God who is your refuge. You do have a God that is your shelter. You do have a God that wants to cover you over like a, like a mother hand covers over its babies. That's who God is. And so he said, I said, you are, <clears throat> you are my refuge. You're my portion in the land of the living. You're my portion, you're my sustenance, you're my courage in the land of the living. And I know there's a lot of people who think, well, you know, we'll just struggle through this life, we'll just make it through this life, and when we all get to heaven, you know, then it's gonna be wonderful, and yes, it's gonna be wonderful in heaven, and yes, you will have fought your last battle when you're in heaven, but guess what? While you're here on planet Earth, he says, David says, that you're my refuge in the land of the living. That means in the right now. You're my refuge. You're my strength in the time and the land and the day that I'm living in right now. I don't have to wait until some day yonder, but I can have his presence and his life right now. You're my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they're stronger than I am. And if we're honest, there are times that we feel like life and the pressure is bigger than we are. And we wonder if we can handle it. We wonder if we are big enough. And I know this is Father's Day. We've got men here. And I wonder sometimes, I think that there's pressure that we men put on ourselves. And we wonder, am I man enough? Am I dad enough? Am I good enough? And that's a tough thing because it seems like sometimes life is stronger than you are. It seems like the pressure is greater than you are. But glory to God, there's good news. He said in verse seven, bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. The righteous will surround me and you will deal bountifully with me. That's what David wrote while he was in the cave of Adullam. He wrote that in the place of refuge, in the place of comfort. And so here's what I want to say to you, first of all, kind of my lesson this morning from the man cave is simply this. The man cave, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, we all need a cave of Adullam. We all need a place that we can pour out our heart to God, where we can be honest with God. He already knows it, first of all, right? He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're going through. The Bible says that we have a high priest that is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows everything about you, and it's okay for you to pour that out to God. With the reminder, as David did, God, you're bigger. You're greater. My enemy, he's bigger than I am, but guess what? Greater is he that's in me than he that is in this world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm the head and not the tail. I'm above only. I will not be beneath. My God supplies all my needs according to his glory and his, or according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, he goes before me. He exalts my valleys. He makes my mountains low. That's who my God is. My God is the creator of the universe of the heaven and earth and there is nothing greater than he is. The name of Jesus is a name that's above every name in heaven, in earth, and under the earth. That's who you are hooked up with. That's who you're in partnership with, greater is he that's in you. When life, not sure what that was for, but anyway, in life, in life, life, man, there's demands in life, but God's bigger than that. He is your portion here in the land of the living. And so here's the lesson, here's the thing that I want you to think about this morning. Perhaps ask yourself this question. 
it seems like, and I think life has always been this way, but you know, we're alive here in this time right now, and it seems like our culture is a culture that says, get everything that you can. Get the most out of life, say yes to everything, experience everything you can, get, get, grab, grab, get, and fill your life with so much stuff. And sometimes our tendency, the temptation is for us to fill our life with so much stuff, as much stuff as possible, that when we get the stuff, we're not enjoying life anymore. We think that having a, a standard of living is going to equal a quality of life. The more stuff that I get, the better my life is going to be. But how many of you have experienced or you know people that you've found out, they have found out, that's not always the case. I got a lot of stuff, but now I got a lot of bills. I got to pay it. I got to pay the bank back. I got to do those things. And guess what? When that happens, now there's another kind of pressure. Get everything you can. Live life to the max. I mean, say yes to everything. Do everything. And have you ever asked yourself why? Why do we want to live so close to the edge that we're just like half a step away from disaster? There's no peace there. There's no joy there. There's no fun there. There's no, you're just crabby to be around. But why do we do it? If we know it's a problem, why do we do that? I think this. I think that one of the biggest motivators is fear. We're afraid. We're afraid that if we don't fill our life with everything, somehow we're going to fall behind. Somehow, if we don't get our kids involved in everything, then our kids are going to fall behind. Or, or, or somebody's going to say, you're a bad parent. I'm afraid that they're going to tell me that I'm a bad parent. I'm afraid that my kid is going to get laughed at if we don't buy this, if we don't get them involved in that. I'm afraid that they won't get to go to this great school in 18 years. Fear motivates a lot of the stuff that we do. It really does. And so here's the lesson from the man cave. I want you to listen to this this morning. But in the book of, uh, of Matthew, Jesus, Jesus said this, verse 31, therefore, do not worry. Look at the person next to you and say, don't worry. And you can say back to them, be happy. Because you know you want to. So let's try that, don't worry. Oh, you guys are ahead of the curve, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, so really, that's what Jesus was saying. Therefore, do not worry, saying. What you say is very important. And so he says, do not worry saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. The Gentiles are those who don't have a covenant with God. They don't have a relationship with God. And he said, the people that don't have a covenant with God, the people that aren't connected with God, they're the ones that are saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? What are we going to put on? What, what, where, where, how come, why? Oh, all of these things. Notice what Jesus said, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. So isn't it these things, what we eat, what we wear, what we're gonna, where we're going to live, our life, isn't these the thing, aren't these the things that cause us to want to fill our life with so much stuff and we put pressure on ourselves? Isn't the, aren't these the things that really cause us to run for our life? They add the stress, stress and pressure. And Jesus said, your father knows that you need these things. I think that the answer to what if and what about and if I don't, then this and that, the answer is my father knows that I have need of these things. I think the answer to that fear question of what if is my father knows I, ha I, I need these things. My father knows that I need a good job. My father knows that I need 
clothes to wear and a place to live. My father knows that I want my kids to have a good education. My heavenly father knows that all of those things cost money. My heavenly father knows that I have need of these things. My heavenly father knows that I have a need for a relationship. And I'm afraid that, you know, life is going to pass me by. And, and, you know, all of these different things. Your heavenly father knows that you have need of those things. And in this question of asking God, what if? Because we think that when, to hear this verse, your heavenly father knows what you need of. Our temptation is to think, yeah, that's nice, but that's probably not going to work with my family. Pastor Brian, I like what you're saying, but that's not going to work with my schedule. Pastor Brian, I, I, I kind of hear what you're saying. I'm not totally buying it, but I don't know that that's going to work in the 21st century. I think the best thing about the Bible is there's no expiration date. There's no expiration date with the Bible. And so I want to finish this up this morning with, with this simple little question. In fact, I want you to close your eyes, bow your heads just for a moment this morning. And I want you to build a little cave right where you're at. And I want you to think about the maybe fear of the future. The things that you maybe question and, and wonder. And I want to ask you this question. What if, what if we actually believed and acted like God knows what we have need of? What if we really took those words of Jesus that your father knows what you need to heart and we believe that? What if we lived that way? What if we acted that way? So with your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, just consider that for a moment. How would your life be different if you lived with the confidence that your father already knows what you have need of? Wouldn't that bring peace into your life? Wouldn't that encourage your soul? Yeah, I know, but it hasn't happened before. If he, has need, if he knows what I have need of, then how come I don't have it now? Well, sometimes it's because you have a journey to live out. Other times it's because you didn't know that he knows what you need. Other times it's because you simply didn't believe it. Many people think it's too good to be true. And so with your heads bowed and with your eyes closed this morning, I want you just to think about that for a minute. You might be here single with kids and thinking there's so much pressure. I just can't handle it. You might be facing some kind of a physical thing. Heavenly Father knows that you need healing. The Bible said he sent his word and it brought healing. So if you're here this morning, I want you just to create a, a place, an atmosphere of praise to our God. And you can begin to thank him. Just say, Father, I thank you that you know what I need. And Father, I, I let go of the fear. I let go of that. See, there are things that we have to let go of before we can ever pick something else up. I think David emptied himself in that cave. He poured out his heart to God. And once his heart was empty, God filled his heart with himself. And we need to do that same thing. If you feel yourself like, I'm just at the limit. Just take a deep breath. Fill your lungs with the presence of God. And breathe in that confidence. He knows exactly what you have need of. So, Father, we live in light of that. And, Father, I thank you that if there are those that are here this morning so burdened, so under pressure, that, Father, it's like they almost can't breathe. I thank you that you're the prince of their peace. 
I thank you, Heavenly Father, there's not anything that you can't do. And I thank you that you've said that all things are possible to those who believe. And Lord, we believe. We are believers here this morning that you know exactly what we need. And I thank you, Father, that your ear is not hard of hearing, that you don't hear the cry of your people. And I thank that your hand is not shortened, that it cannot reach out and save. But I thank you that you are here today, that you're conducting business with your children. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you're causing those who are are weak and are tired to be strengthened and encouraged. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that those whose strength fail, that they will mount up with wings like as of eagles and they'll run, not be weary. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you're speaking words of wisdom into the heart and lives of people today, that you're giving direction, that you're giving wisdom, that you're giving inspiration. And to those who want to give up, those who've been tempted, to quit. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you're strengthening them so that they take one more step of faith towards you because you've already met them more than halfway. And so, Father, I thank you for that today. And Lord, if there are those who are here this morning that have never surrendered their life to you, they've never confessed you as Savior and as Lord. uh, Father, we remind ourselves of your word that says that Jesus said that unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior and you would like to today, with your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, please, nobody looking around. If you would like to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. Would you lift your hand this morning if you say, Pastor, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Anyone at all? Yes, sir. Thank you. Anyone else this morning? Yes, sir. Thank you. Anyone else this morning? Yes, sir. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Praise God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I want you all to pray this prayer with me. This is, this is the simplicity of Christianity. Let's, let's pray this prayer together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that today, let's all pray this. I thank you today that I've come to this place of believing in you. I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that his, his blood was shed for me. And I believe that he's alive today. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. And his blood was enough for me to be forgiven for all my sin. And so I confess today, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. I surrender my life to you. And I thank you that you've forgiven my sin that you put a new spirit on the inside of me. And I thank you for that, in Jesus' name. And Father, I thank you for these men and women that have prayed this prayer. I thank you for this congregation of men and women. And Lord, I thank you that in the difficult places that they would find a cave of Adullam, they would find a place of refuge, that they would pour out their heart to you, that they would hear from you and be encouraged and strengthened. And Father God, that they would run and not be weary, that they would walk and not faint. And I thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.